Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler on today's show. And we've also got a special interview with Steve Sargent, Triumph's Chief Product Officer. Neil, it's uh, been a minute since we've had you on the Paddock Pass podcast. How are you getting on? <laughs> Doing all right, Steve. Happy New Year. Um, good to be back on the show. I very much enjoyed you boys discussing your uh, top 10 riders of 2020 and last time out. And uh, yeah, back based in Barcelona, uh, managed to get back safely uh, in spite of some Brexit confusion and COVID confusion. But uh, yeah, nice to be back and looking forward to the year ahead. Brexit confusion? I thought everyone was a very happy British fish at this stage. Apparently not. No, they were uh, turning people back uh, at the airport, um, Spanish residents, but British citizens. I think there was a bit of initial confusion, but um, yeah, the Spanish government managed to to basically underline um, that uh, that there was no such need to turn them away. So uh, luckily, I uh, escaped that uh, confusion. So, yep, all good. Hola, Adam. You are obviously not British anymore. Ad. You've been in Barcelona for long enough where uh, Brexit it's not going to be an issue for you. But it's been pretty busy for you over the last week while. Obviously, we had a Supercross show last week and the season's kicked off now. Steve, I've never been British. I'm English. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, actually Brexit's going to be quite a little uh, nice tie into our show this week with Triumph, of course, being, you know, the engine supplier to the Moto2 category. But um, yeah, just to go back to the Supercross show, uh, the season started with a bang. I mean, you know, two two races, two completely different podium lineups. It's um, It's been exciting stuff. Let's see, uh, you know, what happens now that the, the series is going uh, full gas. Yeah, it should be good now that they're pretty much into, what is it, every triple header is Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday again, so it's going to be action-packed at the start of the season, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It was good as well, lad. we had a lot of feedback about the Supercross show, so it seems that a lot of listeners to the pod really enjoyed having something a little bit different, and through the course of the year, that's something that you're going to be able to really help us with. Yeah, we, uh, it's something new, it's something to, to tuck into, and uh, let's just keep a, a, you know an eye on how the results pan out. Uh, Eli Tomac won the second round. He's the reigning champion, of course. Uh, you can never discount a rider of his caliber. But uh, yeah, moving back to MotoGP, Steve, I mean, Moto2 is uh, an interesting one. Um, I think it's a very uh, polemic uh, category. I think people either love it or perhaps are a bit dismissive of it. So uh, it'd be good to hear from Triumph um, on this podcast and also uh, share our views on it. Yeah, and uh, Neil, you were obviously sitting down to interview Steve Sargent, the Chief Product Officer for Triumph for today's show. And we're gonna before we go to the interview, we're just gonna have a quick chat about Moto Two. But for you, what's been the biggest change that we've seen in the two years where Triumph's been involved? Um, I mean, I think in some respects there hasn't been so much change. Uh, the racing has been similar. Obviously, we had uh, a brilliant championship in 2020. I think it was the first time that um, it went all the way to the final race uh, since 2009 in the intermediate class for the first time in the Moto2 era. And uh, you could say that that was a consequence of, uh, of, of the Triumph engine. Um, I mean, we've seen, I think, uh, 11 outright that record's broken uh, in 2020. So there's obviously been a step forward in terms of the, the package and, and how it's performing compared to the Honda engines that we had before. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the bikes are uh, a bit more challenging uh, according to the riders. Um, you know, there's a higher top speed. Um, those are all good things. I think one of the perhaps negative things is that Basically, KTM made a real mess of their first year with the Triumph engine in 2019 and uh, withdrew. And basically, a consequence of that is now that 
it's once again uh, kind of like a Calyx Cup. You know, I think 20 of the 28 bikes on the grid last year were Calyx chassis. Um, there were only four speed ups, a couple of NTS chassis, and a, a few MV Augustas. So that variety that uh, I thought Calyx brought to the class in 2018 and 2019 and 17, sorry, I think they came in 17. Um, you know, that variety has sadly gone away once again. So um, hopefully that's something that can be um, eradicated maybe in 2022. And Ad, what about for you? When you talk about Model 2, what's the big thing that comes to your mind? Well, that's really the point for discussion, isn't it? When it comes to parity in the class, isn't that one of the objectives? Uh, I think a loss, like Neil mentioned, a loss of another chassis manufacturer is, is a bit of a blow for any kind of diversity that the bikes hold up. But really, um, I think the emphasis with Triumph as well, one of their objectives was, I think, you know, we'll hear in the interview, uh, was to bring the bikes or the technology closer to, to the MotoGP machines. Um, so it really threw more um, emphasis on rider development and rider adaptation to the class. But I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a formula class really, isn't it? And, you know, I'd like to see in a sport that's so dominated by technology, the, the rider trying to make the difference. Uh, I think that's one of the interesting factors about it. But I can understand from a, an engineering point of view how it can look, you know, pretty so-so. Yeah, I think it's when you think back to the start of Moto2 in 2010, whenever we had so many different manufacturers on the grid, we had so much variety one week to the next, you really didn't know who was going to be at the front. That's obviously changed over the years. You're always going to get it where it sort of comes down towards much more of a medium. And uh, we've had that over the last few years, like Neil said, especially with Calyx. But it's that was what was the big shame about KTM, obviously withdrawn from the class. But at the end of the day, their decisions being justified by the success they've had in MotoGP as well, Ad. Yeah, and when it comes to being a an engine supplier, Steve, I think, you know, the fact that it could have been anybody, not just Triumph. I think the fact that we kind of ended that period, that Honda period, where even even something as superficial as the audio of the bikes, you know, added a kind of blandness to, to the category. I think it was always going to be a shake-up. You know, I mean, we see a rider like, you know, Alex Marquez, uh, you know, the first kind of world uh, world champion with a, with a Triumph engine. Um, you know, he, he took five wins in his championship season com compared to the zero that he managed, you know, with the Honda and, and managed 10 podiums. So that kind of change in technology and engine character clearly suited him as it did others. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get to it with Steve Sargent from Triumph. He sat down with Neil for an interview just to talk about Triumph's involvement in the class. I guess to start, um, Steve, I mean, what were your intentions um, or what were Triumph's intentions getting into Model 2 in the first place back? And you joined the series in 2019. I mean, I guess the first thing is the opportunity came out of the blue a little bit. So it wasn't something where we were actively looking to get into Moto2 or even, you know, actively looking to get into racing particularly. But um, through uh, through a contact who used to work at Triumph um, and who had been involved in uh, in the MotoGP paddock, um, we became aware of the fact that the uh, the engine contract was going to come up for renewal, um, and it looked as if um, probably Honda weren't going to go forward with wanting to renew. Obviously, they they had an engine that was coming towards the end of its life in terms of a production engine. So, I guess from that side, I can understand um, why they might have wanted to um, move away from Moto Two a little bit and focus on other things, but. Um, you know, it was presented to us as a um, 
would you be interested if I could put you in touch with the right people? Um, and, you know, I love racing personally. Um, uh, so on a personal level, there was a lot of excitement there in terms of, you know, wow, can we, can we really get this over the line? Can we get this done? Um, but obviously you've got to take a bit more of a rational view than that, um, in terms of, well, if we do this, what are the advantages to triumph? What are we going to get from it? Um, and I guess that comes down to a couple of things. Um, firstly, I think it's a demonstration of what triumph can do in terms of, um, engineering and developing and producing, uh, performance-based engines. So, um, I think there are probably a lot of people out there who maybe know Triumph more for the classic models in the lineup. You know, they know the they know the Bonnevilles, they know the the history. You know, they know Triumph from the '60s, um, and to some extent, more recently, you know, maybe they know us for the adventure bikes, for the Tigers, and things like that. And probably, you know, there's a number of people out there who maybe knew Triumph less for the more performance side of things. Um, maybe they weren't so aware of the street triples, speed triples, uh, Daytona. So to get that message out there in terms of, do you know what, Triumph um, covers quite a broad spectrum of product. Um, and part of part of that is obviously um, a growing reputation for being able to develop high-performance triple engines. Um, so that was that's one side of it. Um, off of the back of that, obviously, um, there then comes in that kind of feedback loop in terms of, well, if we're going to go racing with guys who um, are potential future MotoGP champions, um, you know, young guys who are going to, you know, really push the bikes to the limits, um, it's not just a demonstration of capability. It's also, you know, for us, a massive, massive test bed and learning curve in terms of, you know, people pushing things beyond where you would normally push things in, you know, even even in the kind of rigorous testing that we do, you know, um, some of the things that these guys do to get that last ounce of performance out of an engine, you're gonna you're gonna learn stuff from that. Um, so that was another angle to it, um, and then quite clearly the, the 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 third piece of the jigsaw really is getting the triumph name out there. Um, and you know, getting that publicity um, to a global audience. There's millions of people who watch MotoGP, Moto2. Um, again, a lot of those people probably not as aware of Triumph as um, maybe some other brands. Uh, obviously, they've seen the Japanese brands racing. They've seen some of the European brands racing, um, and maybe Triumph hasn't been quite so visible to those guys. So. You know, getting Triumph out there in front of people, getting that awareness up. Um, and the good thing about MotoGP, Moto2, is it, it is a relatively young audience. Um, and I think all of us are looking for ways to get people interested in motorcycling from a younger age. And I think, you know, uh, racing does that really, really well. Um, you know, it's a, it's a super exciting championship to watch. It's something people can engage in. And, you know, and hopefully for some people that triggers the, do you know what, I just might have a go at it uh, and get out on two wheels and, and see what that's like. So, yeah, I mean, that, that side of it, that kind of awareness and that brand building is is big. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I mean, we can see that the uh, the Triumph engine has a lot more torque than uh, the Honda ones that you replaced. Um, the noise is obviously very different. Uh, riders say that the characteristics of how the bike should be ridden um, is quite different than what happened before. And there are some different uh, electronics um, uh, facilities that riders can use that they didn't have before. But before you joined, what did Dorna brief you on what they kind of wanted from your engine? Did they give you a specific idea of where to work or, or was it all just coming from you and your designers? Uh, no, so there was definitely a two-way conversation there. And, um, you know, from, from Dorna's side, first thing they wanted to, um, to make sure that they were working with an engine that was kind of at the start of its life. So therefore, you know, it's some, something that had some longevity to it and had um, the potential to be developed um, as, as we went forwards. And at that point in time, we'd only just launched the 765 triple uh, into the street triple family. So in terms of having an engine that was at the start of its life, then that, that was a box that was ticked. Um, Second ambition really was to move the championship a little bit closer to MotoGP. Um, that was on pr probably three different levels, really. So, you know, the first level was just just in pure performance terms, in terms of, you know, providing a bike that was um, performance-wise maybe a little bit more uh, powerful, a little bit torquier, uh, maybe in some respects a little bit more challenging to ride. Um, certainly gave the riders an opportunity to ride the bike in a different way. Um, so closing that performance gap down just in terms of pure performance was um, was a factor. Um, then the electronics package was obviously also um, important to them. What, what they had recognized was the fact that the electronics in Moto3 had actually advanced beyond where they were in Moto2. Um, and for a lot of the teams and a lot of the riders who were moving up from Moto2 to MotoGP, it was quite a big jump for them to um, suddenly have to cope with an awful lot more variables than they had uh, when they were racing in Moto2. So to get the, get the riders and get the teams used to having a lot more adjustability, um, you know, giving them a bit more of a technical challenge, I guess, in some respects was, was quite important. And that, and that was really kind of the third, third string to the bow was not just, um, you know, getting the riders um, in a better position to move up to MotoGP, but also giving some of the technicians and the teams um, a deeper understanding of the electronics so that they would be more capable of moving up to MotoGP. So um, those were kind of three of the three of the big things that we talked about. And then obviously the other thing we talked about was um, that kind of where do you draw the line between chasing performance and um uh, making sure that the bikes are reliable um, and it was quite clear from the discussions with Dorna that obviously they, they had an engine they had a package that had got a good reputation for reliability um, and you know obviously in terms of the race weekend it's really really important for, for Dorna that the television schedule uh, works um, and hits its timing slot so making sure that the Moto2 practices and races go off without a hitch as much as you know as much as they possibly can uh was quite important so we had quite a long discussion around okay wherever we end up in terms of performance we need to make sure that we're still in you know a real um really good place in terms of durability yeah absolutely and i mean that that kind of leads on to my next question um in the nine years that honda were the uh 
the engine supplier for the class. Um, I can maybe count on two hands the amount of reliability issues. It must have been quite an undertaking to uh, to try and replicate that. Basically, I mean that must have taken you know a lot of a lot of uh, lots of precedence and yeah, a lot of work to make sure that everything did run smoothly. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, it was quite nerve wracking um, because you know every time we did a press event or a press conference about Moto Two, all of the journalists would say. How do you feel about following the Honda that's been so reliable? <laughs> and you're kind of thinking, yeah, yeah, we get the message. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, quite honestly, we, we have, uh, you know, a long history of working with this engine platform. Um, it, it has been developed from the 675 Daytona engine, which has been used, used in racing in, uh, super sport, uh, world super sport, you know, TT racing. Uh, obviously we've got hours and hours of, um, time on engine dynos and on racetracks testing this engine platform so we you know we have a real good knowledge of uh, of the engine and its and its strengths um so whilst it, in some respects it was a little bit daunting in terms of you know the the eyes of the world were looking at us to say come on guys are you going to be as good as the as the honda um on the other side, we had an awful lot of history behind it, behind us that gave us the confidence that, yeah, we're, you know, we're in a good place. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we just, uh, well, we're in 2021 now, but um, I guess the, the memories of 2020 are still fresh. And I mean, it was a, a brilliant Model 2 championship with what, four riders uh, going into the final race, still having a chance of winning the championship. I mean, the the um, it was changing by the lap almost in that race in Portugal. Um you know, the race one was certainly good last year. How do you feel the performance of uh, the engine has been? Are you satisfied with, with where you are after two years of this Auto 2 adventure? Yeah, I think the good thing, um, the good thing about the second year was that uh, in some respects, we expected that we would still be breaking lap records because, um, you know, the teams have got an, an extra year's worth of data behind them. They've got an extra year's worth of, of experience. So just by the fact that they were arriving at a lot of circuits with a lot of base data and a lot of knowledge, um, we kind of knew that they probably would go faster. But, you know, to get to get another kind of 11 outright lap records in the second year, uh, for, for me, still feels like quite an impressive achievement. Um, and, you know, the, again, the, the feedback that we've had from the riders continues to be you know really really positive and really good so yeah i think we've got to be pleased with it absolutely um and uh, you mentioned that one of the reasons for getting into the series was uh, was exposure it was also to get the attentions of the younger audience that um model gp attracts and try to get them into motorcycling i mean do you feel that the triumph is getting the, the kind of exposure that you hoped or you expected when you entered into model two I think we are, and I think the the, the proof of that, um, you know, the, the the challenge that uh, I was set by, you know, our CEO was, you know, kind of um, proved to me that this will have an impact on bike sales at the end of the day, and and I guess that that ultimately is the proof in terms of it, it is being in Moto Two delivering for us as a brand, and what we have seen since we've been in Moto Two is. Uh, so sales of street triples, for example, in countries like Spain and Italy, um, which are countries that obviously are huge MotoGP, Moto2 fan bases, um, the sales in those countries have increased quite significantly over previous years. 
Um, and in terms of hitting a younger audience, we just before uh, Christmas launched the, the new Trident model, and we're starting to see now some of the statistics come in of people who are showing an interest and in putting deposits down on that model. And uh, it's a significantly younger uh, age group than than we had attracted previously. So, you know, uh, you can't draw a direct line and say that's all down to the Moto2 effect. But, um, you know, I'm reasonably confident that you can put a fair amount of it down to that. Yeah. yeah. And when you say significantly younger, I mean, what kind of ages are we are we talking about here? In terms of age groups? Yeah, yeah just generally. So like- so if you if you look at uh, so for example if you take our adventure bikes then the typical um, uh, age of somebody coming in buying like a Tiger nine hundred would be somebody in their mid forties to early fifties would be a kind of typical age range. What we've seen with the um, with the Trident is we're seeing guys from twenty five to thirty five. Um, so that's that's the kind of different in age category that you're looking at. Okay, interesting. Um, now, in 2020, you created the uh, Triumph Triple uh, Trophy Awards, um, mm. which uh, eventually went to Marco Bezzecchi. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, what was the thinker behind this award? And, uh, and and what is it, essentially, to maybe some listeners that might not know exactly what, what this is? Yeah, so what we wanted to do is uh, we wanted to highlight some of the other performances that were happening over a race weekend. Um rather than purely focus on the on the race winner so we uh set up uh, the triple trophy award uh to give points for uh the, the top speed uh over the weekend the pole position and also the fastest race lap so it was um seven points for the the top speed six for a pole position and five for the fastest race lap i'm not quite sure where we came up with seven six five from but i'm sure that came from somewhere and um <laughs> to be fair i mean what what we wanted to do was to highlight a few more of the characters in in the um you know in the pit i mean the intent was originally that we would have done a lot more on site with the whole thing obviously the the problem we had uh, last year was that uh, people couldn't get into the paddock um but had people been able to get into the paddock, then there would have been a display in the paddock with the um, with the bike that was up for grabs for the winner, which was the Street Triple RS. Uh, and also there would have been a leaderboard there in the paddock. And, you know, we'd, we would have been doing a lot more kind of on-site uh, stuff around the Triple Trophy, which unfortunately we couldn't do. But, you know, it was a toe in the water. Um, I think, you know, it attracted some interest. Uh Marco won it at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, and interestingly, he got a lot of his points from being uh, the top speed. He was consistently him and Luca, actually between the two of them, were, were consistently uh, top speeds on most circuits. And you know, people have said to me, "Well, kind of, what do you put that down to?" And if you look at it, um, I think Sky Racing do an amazing job in terms of how they work as a team during uh, practice and qualification. They have a tendency to follow each other around and to help each other out. And I'm pretty sure that's why they've been reasonably consistently high up in the top speed um, stakes. But uh, yeah, I think it was, it was a nice toe in the water. We, we do intend to, to carry it on. Um, Hopefully, it's something that we can do a little bit more with once we can get actually people into circuits and people into the paddock. Okay, excellent. Um, and just uh, one final question for you, Steve. Um, if I'm not wrong, um, we're going into the, the third year 
of a three-year agreement um, to be sole engine supplier of, uh, of Model Two. I mean, what does the what does the future hold for Triumph um, in terms of um, well, it playing a part of uh, Model GP, and what does it hold in terms of uh, continued development? So when um, when we signed the original contract, it was a three-year contract with a, an option to extend. So we uh, have been in discussions already with with Dorna, uh, and those discussions have gone really well. We're quite well advanced with that now. So, you know, I have a lot of confidence that you're going to continue to see Triumph in uh, in the MotoGP paddock in in Moto2. What that allows us to do is allows us now to think a little bit more about um, where we might want to take some of the development for the future. So we. We've had some great feedback from the, the riders and the teams in terms of, you know, we've said to these guys, if there were two or three things that you could change on the engine, what would they be? And we've had some really good feedback from that. And, you know, they are things that, that can be done as well, uh, which, again, would move things forward a little bit in terms of performance, um, which I think is is a good thing to do because I think, you don't want it to get to the point where everybody has developed their bike to such a degree that, um, you know, they're all going around at very, very consistent speed. So to, to set teams a new challenge in terms of, here you go, we've made some changes, you know, there's a new technical challenge for you to get your heads around. You've got to work out some slightly different settings at each of the circuits, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would be a, a real positive thing. So, Hopefully we can get everything over the line with Dorna and then we can start working on a, a development program for the future. Okay, fantastic. And I just squeeze one final question, Steve, if that's okay. Um, I mean, we haven't really had any preseason testing worth talking about, but if I had to put you on the spot and uh, tell you to place 10 points uh, on the future champion of uh, the Model 2 Championship this year, who would you go for? Who would I go for? Um Bezeki's got to be up there. Um, to be honest, um, I'd love to see a Brit do something. Um, I actually uh, met up with Jake Dixon a couple of days ago for another event that we were doing, and uh, Jake's recovering well from uh, his surgery. Um, as ever with Jake, he's super positive, um, and you know he's he's definitely up for it. Whether next season would be right for him to win it. Maybe not both, but I certainly think, you know, he, he's going to be up there. He's going to be challenging for, for podiums and stuff. Um, I'd really like to see Sam string a whole season together. Uh, that would be fabulous. Um, so I think be, between Sam and Bezeki, I think would be, would be the obvious uh, kind of um, top two. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, um, thanks very much for your time, Steve. Um, I really appreciate All right. it. Uh, yeah, you sharing a, a couple of minutes with us and uh, some interesting, interesting insight in there as well. So, yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, great stuff there with Steve Sargent from Triumph. And uh, Neil, just to, as we get back to discussing Moto2 and the changes we've seen really since Triumph came in, how big of a change was the engine for the riders, for the teams, for the racing? Um, I think the the change was was quite significant at first. Um, obviously, you've got a bigger capacity. Um, I think they believe that there's around thirty percent more torque available with the uh, with the Triumph engine compared to the the Honda CBR six hundred engine. Um, the riding style had to be changed 
relatively significantly. Um, I think it became more about um, stopping the bike and kind of pointing it and getting it onto the fatter part of the tire rather than trying to carry um, higher corner speed that you had before. Um, And, uh, well, we were told that there was going to be some significant electronic aids with the Triumph engine because that wasn't really the case with Honda. Um, obviously, Adam mentioned earlier that, uh, and, and Steve mentioned in the interview, that Dorna wanted basically this to be a little closer to MotoGP than what they had before. Um, and, you know, I think there's now uh, engine braking electronic aids, but um, still maybe looking to, to add a few more things in that regard um, to make it a bit more challenging for riders and engineers alike. Um but um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Has there been that big a change with regards to with regards to racing? I don't think that much. I would say most of the names that were competitive in the the six hundred era were competitive in the the seven six five era. Um, hasn't really seen too many people thrown uh, by the wayside. Um, so yeah, I would say there's the significant. Um, there's a significant technical change, but in terms of the racing, I think uh, the Moto 2 spectacle is relatively similar to what it was. Ad, I think you're going to disagree with Neil about the quality of the racing because we've talked about it even last or last week whenever we recorded the Patreon show just for our top 10 riders of the year. We talked a little bit about Moto 2 and how suddenly in 2020 there was an interest in Moto 2 again. You wanted to sit down and watch it. Obviously, we want to sit down and watch it to hear what Neil has to say during practice sessions. But uh, you wanted to sit down and watch all the action through last year. Yeah, it was. I thought, you know, since Triumph have come in and, and changed things up, Steve. Um, you know, I've done interviews in the past with Tom Luti, for example, who went to MotoGP, um, and, and he talked a little bit about the gulf that he found in the technology between the motorcycles. Um, you know, I think it's 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 helped. It must have helped in the development. Um, you know, just watching the action and, and the skills of the riders, um, you know, if you look at two of the, the athletes going into uh, MotoGP next year, um, you know, Luca Marini, I think he took five podiums in the first nine rounds. I mean, then he kind of faded a little bit. Bastianini, of course, the, the world champion. Um, in, my, in my opinion, I think it's just been it's been an upgrade. Yeah, and I, I'd agree with you as well. I, I think it's made a massive change, mainly because the riders now have an awful lot more to learn. It's not like it was whenever they were stepping up from Moto3 onto the Honda Engine 600. That seems to be a much easier step. And Neil, I think you can see that with the amount of riders that we saw basically do one and done in Moto2. You know, Vinales, Rins, whoever you want to look at, that went into Moto2 for one season. And after three or four races, were already winning Moto2 races and felt ready to make the step. A lot of them have said, you know, after half a season, they were ready for a MotoGP bike. Whereas I think with the change to Triumph, that seems to have been a little bit of a shift where there's a lot more for them to learn in the class. Yeah, I think you're you're right with that, Steve. You could also add, you know, Joanne Mir was there just for a year and before he stepped up. Um, and that was in the 600cc era. Um, and yeah, if you look at the uh, the rookies that have come up from Moto3 in, in recent times, I mean, like the, the reigning uh, Moto3 world champion last year, Lorenzo Dallaporta had a horrible year. I think he maybe only finished in the points one or two times. Um, Aaron Kinnett, I think, was the best of the rookies. And he, I think, got a pole position, had some really solid top 10 finishes, but wasn't winning races like we saw with um, with Vinales, for example, or or even with Alex Rins in their first years. Um, again, I would temper that our Dallaporta and Kinnett you know, at the same level as Vinales, Rins, and, and Mir. 
I'm not sure. But um, but yeah, it definitely would seem that it, it takes generally a bit more time uh, to adapt to these bikes. And I think we're going to see it. Um, we're going to see definitively uh, this year in 2021 because you've basically got the absolute creme de la creme of uh, the 2020 Molo 3 class stepping up in, in the form of uh, Arenas, uh, Agora, Vietti uh, and several other guys. So uh, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot better, a lot clearer example um, of how Moto3 Murkies will fare um, and how much more they will have to learn with a Moto2 machine uh, this year. Uh, we've seen a lot of times where Moto2's really an all or nothing season. You're either at the top or as you're struggling. And you mentioned Tom Ludi earlier on. He was one of the real riders that struggled last year. We didn't, we've never really seen him struggle like that in the intermediate class or in 125s whenever he was there, but it was a real struggle all the way through. Is that a, a good indicator of how tough it is to maximize everything in Moto2 or is it a bit of a one-off, do you think? Yeah, it's sometimes hard to explain, Steve. I think, um, you know, you have... Of course, there are extenuating circumstances. I mean, it was a, a COVID-19 influence championship as well last year. And there's things such as injury, uh, behind the scenes issues with teams and, and so on. But, you know, it's quite significant that, you know, from 2019, the top three riders uh, in the top five, sorry, you had, you know, Jorge Navarro, Tom Luzzi and Augusto Fernandez. I mean, you know, they all placed outside the top 10 uh, in 2020. I mean, I think... Uh, uh, it might have been Fernandez who was down in 17th. I mean, that's quite a drastic drop-off compared, you know, in the space of, of one year. So it can be quite hard to put your finger on the, the causes of it. I mean, I can remember doing an interview a few years ago uh, with Scott Redding while he was riding for Mark VDS, who you could argue are, are probably the most prolific team in the class. I mean, it was a fantastic season for Sam Lowe's last year. Um but And he said that, you know, one of the reasons why Mark VDS had been able to be so successful with riders like Franco Morbidelli and of course Alec Marquez was just the way that they went testing um, and the the resources and the attention they paid to every single small detail of the motorcycle just to try and find that kind of tenth of a second to, to find some sort of advantage and you think well surely every racing team a serious ones have that kind of philosophy but maybe Mark VDS does have that that extra I don't know what it is you know to, to make those results happen. Yeah, I think that that was what surprised me at the Catalan World Superbike test last year. I think it was the start of July. It was the first group test after the lockdowns had finished. And we arrived at the test and, you know, there was the Mark VDS team were there. And it was Sam and uh, Augusto Fernandez were on or ones and they, the you know, they had them painted up like the race bikes. They had their crew chiefs down with them. They had one mechanic each. They had Juan Alive was there. They had as many people as they could. I think their press officer was there at one stage as well. And it was one of those things that just shows you they do everything they can to leave no stone unturned. And Neil, that's probably the, the big reason why they've had such success. They really do go all in on everything and try and make sure that all the bases are covered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the Mark VDS team was born out of uh, Kawasaki's MotoGP effort, um, basically stopping. Right? I mean, that was the, that was the the core of of that team initially. Um, whenever Mark VDS's MotoGP effort was falling apart in two thousand and eighteen, basically it was um, it was there where uh, Wilco Zielenberg, Razlan Razali, and uh, and Johann Stigerfeld shopped and and handpicked some of their their technicians for the the Sepang racing team. So. Yeah, it's always been a it's always been a team that's um, that hasn't lacked resources for sure. Certainly hasn't lacked ambition. Um, and as you 
as you mentioned, Steve, it's just about fine-tuning all of those details and basically they have the kind of the clout and the the intelligence, um, the knowledge basically to, to kind of turn that into into results. I mean, if they've won world championships with Rabat, with Morbidelli, with Marquez, um, you know, those results speak for themselves. Do we think that Moda 2 is perhaps the the most interesting category in MotoGP? I mean, you could say just the the variety, you know, uh, for example, Lorenzo Baldassari, you could say he was on the fast track to go into MotoGP and by all intents and purposes, he, he kind of disappeared in 2020. You never really kind of know what you're going to get. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe it's it, part of it's down to, part of it's down to, you know, what, what turns you on? Uh, I would say it's probably not the best category. Uh, you know, MotoGP I think is doing a pretty stellar job at the moment. But yeah, there are tons of interesting storylines like Baldassari, or you mentioned earlier, add Tom Lutti or Fernandez or, or Navarro. You know, heroes one year and then down in the down in the depths of the the low scoring point positions the next. Um, there's lots of interesting stories, and I think it's a you know when you look at the lap times and you look at um, how races are how races are won and how races are, are basically plotted, the strategies that are used, you know, I think there is no better training for MotoGP. You know, what you're doing in Moto2 essentially is what you're you're putting into practice. Moto3 is, is just a mess at times, you know, there's no kind of strategy, there's sometimes no leader, there's, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of, uh, any kind of pattern to it. Um, but I think with Moto2 you can definitely see, and you've seen it in recent years with the guys that have then stepped up to MotoGP, um, you know how those races are are plotted and how they're won. Um, those are definitely skills that are instantly transferable to what you need for the premier class. But what's I'd- interesting for me is that, sorry, Steve, is uh, you know you can have. I think you can see a rider's trajectory clearer in Moto Two. Um, you know you can get a sense of. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody again like Remy Gardner. Um, you could see him struggling with equipment in Moto3, uh, also the same issue in Moto2, but you can almost visually see his progression. Uh, you can see like stars in the making. I think that's that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a whole host of stars there. You're, you're basically looking at the guys that are, are going to be the next MotoGP stars. And with with Cal Crutzlow, Andrea Davizioso stepping aside, I mean, we've got such a young stable of, of riders now with the likes of, uh, of Marini, Martin, Bastianini uh, stepping up and you have to imagine from the current Moto2 crop, someone like Remy Gardner will be in MotoGP pretty soon as well. Um, Marco Bezzecchi uh, will probably be there in 2022. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's another big draw for the class. Um, you're basically watching the stars of tomorrow doing their thing and, and you can see really, you know, who's got that little bit of magic about them um, from what they do in that class. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the things that's interesting with it is is that in the past, you always looked at Moto3 to be able to find that next superstar. Whereas now, like Ad says, we are able to actually find some guys in Moto2 that are able to maybe have slipped through the cracks in Moto3 and, and are now getting a better opportunity. I think it's one of the things that, for me, has been one of the changes we've seen since Triumph came in. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that you're starting from a blank sheet of paper, Ad. You're looking from... You're not looking at data for 10 years with the same engine. I think, um, you know, it's also uh, maybe a valid point as well is look at Jack Miller. I mean, maybe the last high profile rider to be plucked out of Moto3 and and put straight into MotoGP in his initial struggles. 
uh, it seems Moto2 has to be the essential step now. And MotoGP team bosses and brands are tending to ignore World Superbike, for example. Uh, they're, they're focusing mainly on, on, on you know, the intermediate class. It seems to be the main kind of route or step into MotoGP, the only one. I think that's something that's also quite interesting about about the Triumph era. Again, you have to temper this slightly with with wondering just about the the quality of riders. But uh, anyone that came from Superbike into Moto Two in the six hundred cc era, I think uh, the most notable one was Josh Heron came in as an AMA or a Moto America Superbike champion. I think he lost his job two thirds of the way into the season, uh, and he was riding for a pretty decent team as well. Um, but if you look at the last two years and then again during this off season uh, you've had someone like Jake Dixon stepping up from the British Superbike Championship and having pretty substantial success in his second year in the class you look at uh, Cameron Bobbier I think that's going to be one of the, the really interesting things about 2021 in Moto2 is seeing how good Bobbier is um, I think he was 0.6 off the fastest Moto2 rider in his first ever Moto2 test uh, at Hereth at the end of last year which indicates that he's going to be pretty strong. Um, so it does seem that with these Triumph engines, maybe you don't just, it's not going to be successful just for guys that have stepped up from Moto3. You know, there is a kind of broader background of rider that could be could be successful in this class. But also, I mean, Steve, what do you think? Because, uh, you know, again, Moto2 seems to have been a very positive platform, certainly in the last two years for a rider like Joe Roberts. Um, I think it's no secret that MotoGP would like to see an American in the premier class again. And, you know, I, I think if Roberts had been in Superbike or he had been, you know, trying to cut some sort of uh, path in the craziness of Moto3, then he wouldn't be talked about as a potential factory rider like he was very late into 2020. I know that was a pretty crazy situation for him, but it still shows that, you know, Moto2 is is the, the most effective launch pad to get in in the Premier class. Yeah, well, it's about being in the paddock. If you're in the paddock and you're like Joe Roberts having pole positions and fighting for podiums, you're going to get an opportunity. I think that the biggest problem for Joe is that, like Neil said, Cambobia came in and was very fast from the outset. Everyone knows how talented Bobia is. So if he adapts well to a Moto2 bike, is Joe Roberts really going to get a look in for those seats? Garrett Gerloff's doing a great job in World Superbikes last year. He's into his second year. If he's able to win races, if he's able to challenge at the front, suddenly Joe Roberts might fall another person down the pecking order. And I think Roberts could end up in that sort of situation where he had his opportunity to move on to a MotoGP bike, didn't take it, and he may not get another one. And, you know, Roberts is is a good rider, but there was a lot of times where his really good results, Neil, all seemed to happen at crazy tracks. They all seemed to happen where the grip was really bad. That seemed to really play to his strengths. And maybe for him, the big things about being able to find that bit more consistency and maybe going to the Ital Trans team could well be the step that he needs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's another interesting story that uh, that we'll have this year. Just um, you know, seeing how good Joe Roberts is in the in the World Championship winning team, um, knowing that you know there could be a possibility of, of a MotoGP ride um, available for him possibly for another American, the, the ones that you mentioned, Steve, um, and seeing how he deals with that kind of pressure because no one really expected anything of Joe last year. Um, after his Qatar success, we obviously had the uh, the delay because of the COVID situation and then he arrived at Hareth expecting to clear off and win both races and put his name firmly in the in the hat for the championship and it just did not work out that way and he really, you know, it was a total disaster. He had put too much pressure on himself. So it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with 
the pressure that comes with riding for one of the best teams in the paddock and a team that will expect him to win races. I mean, do you think it's it's realistic to say that Moto Two is now the essential uh, platform to to get into MotoGP? I mean, I can't imagine another example like Ben Spees, uh, you know, coming straight out of Superbike and into a satellite then factory effort in, in MotoGP in the future. And, and you know, if we're talking specifically about British riders, um, you know, of which now there's a lack of in MotoGP. Uh, you, you're looking at somebody like Jake Dixon who's just trying to apply his trade in Moto2 and anybody else, maybe from BSB or s- some of the younger series, uh, you know, they're going to have to get into that category first. And they're not going to find any other way through, it seems. Well, the one thing I'd say as well about that, though, is that in terms of the young British riders coming through, that's been one of the big questions that's been asked everywhere for years now because yeah. BSB isn't producing that class of rider that they did years ago. BSB still lives for want of a better word on the back of that crop of riders that came through 2006 to 2008 2009 the crutch those rays cameos whoever you want to look at from that era were all world-class riders if you look at bsb over the last 10 or 11 12 years who's actually come from bsb and gone on to have success on the world stage in world superbikes you're looking at alex lowe's in Moto2, we've obviously had Jake Dixon's done a, a really good job last year. Now he needs to build on that. Other than that, there haven't really been that many success stories of young British riders that came through the BSB chain. There's been riders that have gone out to race in Spain and tried their hand at different classes, but there haven't really been that many successful ones. So Britain needs to get better at producing riders. And maybe that's where the talent cups, maybe that's where the changes that we're seeing in the Supersport class can really help British riders, but we do need to see some of them make the step up because the likes of Brad Ray, Ray was really touted in 2018 as being that potential star in the making, and it never really quite happened for him. And just to go back to what Adam was asking there, you know, is Moto2 the the main platform for MotoGP? I would say yes, it is, but then it has been, you know, for the last... 10 years i mean it, the 250 class before it was was the the main pool from which uh moto gp teams would would pick and and select their riders i mean going back to you know 2006 2005 you know the pedrosas stoners Daviziosos, lorenzos they all came through you know 250s and uh and i think moto 2 has is the main um is the main place where where moto gp teams will find that talent because they know the tracks uh the racing is 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 roughly uh, similar to what they need to to do and to what they need to hone in MotoGP and uh, yeah, I think it is the the main area, but it has been that way for you know the past twenty years basically. The intermediate category I'm talking about. Would you say that Jack Miller's case then is not only one highly unusual but also proven to be perhaps right in that skipping past Moto Two was was a fallacy? But then also look at Juan Mir. I mean, the reigning Moto GP world champion. You could say that he was just chucked into in Moto Two to get a taste and to make sure that you know some of the credentials he had as Moto Three world champion were were valid before he was chucked onto the bigger bike. I I just wonder if you know there's going to be a couple of guys in the future. You know, I mean, I know some of, like you said earlier, Neil, some of the stars of Moto3 are already in Moto2 for 2021. But I just wonder if, you know, there will be many people following Jack Miller's path and, and just skipping straight past that that Triumph kind of bike and, and getting on, on a bigger one. Well, I think that the one thing about Jack is that it's taken him six years to really be that front-running 
potential, you know, factory Ducati rider lead a team kind of thing. Because when Miller came into MotoGP, he wasn't a MotoGP rider. It took him, you know, a full season to change his training, to get himself into that fitness where he was able to really be strong enough for a MotoGP bike. I think Jack is an outlier because he's a super talent. But is it a step that I think people should have should make more often? I think that's very debatable whether or not it actually worked out well for Jack and whether that would work out well for a lot of other riders. I think Jack had his win at Assen, Neil. And other than that, in those first few years, it was really just flashes. It wasn't a case of being able to have sustained success. Whereas maybe if he had it done a year in Moto2, he would have had that sustained success a little bit earlier in his MotoGP career. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's a valid argument. Obviously, the Aston success in 16 was sensational and he had some really uh, strong races through 16 and 17. But essentially, you're looking at uh, 2019, year five of Miller being a MotoGP is the first time that he was kind of consistently producing good results. And yeah, I mean, if you take away two of those years and, and say maybe he went to Moto2 and won the championship there, you know, you would expect him in his third year of MotoGP to be, you know, uh, to be running at the front. Um, but I would just say this to you, I'd like, look at the last couple of Moto3 World Champions we've had. I mean, Arenas, uh, Dallaporta, uh, back then in, in 18, before then, um, goodness me, my memory is quite fuzzy at this Martin. time. Martin. <laughs> or Martin, exactly. I mean, would you, would you have put any of those guys directly in the MotoGP straight after they won the championship? I mean, I don't think, I don't think I would. Yeah, there's no kind of outstanding talent there. But, I mean, Mir, you could argue, was was Miller-esque in terms of people rating him that highly and clearly having the, the skill set and the character to, to achieve. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. But then, you know, I think he's something of, a, of an outlier. You know, you don't get talents that good, that strong uh, every year. The, the, other, the other point out as well about Mir is Mir was in his second year of Grand Prix racing whenever he won his Moto3 championship. I think Jack had done four years in Moto3. I think he was there from 2012 onwards. And uh, so he already had Grand Prix experience where someone like Mir wouldn't have had that experience. I think Jack ended up, I think, in that sort of Moto3 era. We've always had it where the riders that are at the top of the experience charts all tend to do well. And that's where, like, you know, Neil mentioned Arenas, and a few other riders that, you know, if you go all the way back, Danny Kent, Sandro Cortese, all those guys that won Moto3 World Championships, there's very few of them are, you know, a, a Juan Mir in their second year in the class. They're usually quite experienced. Yeah, I mean, as Neil said, historically as well, the intermediate category has been that filter, hasn't it, to jump into to the maiden class. But just coming back to the split between the Honda and the Triumphs again, um, you know, I'm curious to see how the two world champions, Bastianini and obviously Alex Marquez, I think we agreed on the top 10 show on, on the Patreon, is has had a pretty decent first season uh, as a MotoGP rookie. Uh, but then the two riders that, you know, were champion before him, I mean, Franco Morbidelli and Peko Bagnaia, they've also shone, you know, in MotoGP. I don't think we can dispute their, their status or their position in the Premier class. Um, so, you know, whether it's a Honda engine, a 600, or it's a Triumph, it's a triple or whatever, you know, it seems that Moto2 is still doing the job of, of prepping these guys. Yeah, the best are always going to get to the top. And Neil, that's the case, whether it's the Triumph engine or the Honda engine. 
And maybe now it's just a little bit easier to sort of strain it and see who's actually got that ultimate top level that a MotoGP team's going to look for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at, um, you know, Johan Zarco, I think, is the only double Moto2 champion that we've had uh, going back to 2010. Uh, both of his championships came in the 600cc era, and he very nearly won his first MotoGP race. He was leading it for, what, seven or eight laps before he, he binned it at uh, Qatar back in 17. So, you know, um, yeah, the, the, the Honda clearly, uh, Honda uh, 600 engine, and that package in Moto Two was also clearly like a, a decent, um, a decent package to to teach riders what was what was necessary for Moto GP um, back in the day. But I think, um, yeah, it does seem that the Triumph is just that little bit closer in terms of power, in terms of uh, in terms of character, engine character, um, handling. It just seems it is a little bit closer to Moto GP and should um, give uh, you know give riders a little bit better. Um, teaching and grinding um, in what is needed for the premier class but as you said Steve you know cream will always rise um, no matter what bike you put them on Um, and uh, I think that history has proved that for me um, also from the interview there were two other kind of interesting comments that Steve made Um, the first one is uh, the reliability I mean I think we could all be quite pleasantly surprised you know that for a new manufacturer to the to the demands of Grand Prix racing the Triumph's been pretty pretty reliable i mean it's been it's been pretty sturdy um and the second thing i thought was 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 quite curious was the fact that you know triumph will try and put a bit more variety that they will allow teams to develop more to find more of an edge um it's not a case of okay guys there's the same engine crack on there's going to be a little bit more <clears throat> possibility for you know extra evolution i mean 11 fastest lower 11 lap records in 2020 shows that you know the the technology is still breaking new ground but it looks like it could go even better yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you add into that, I think it was at Mugello in 2019, um, Nicola Bulliger cracked the 300 kilometer per hour barrier on the straight. Um, you know, I think that's up 10 kilometers per hour on uh, on what was before, you know, that's quite a significant increase um, in uh, in engine. Um, and then you, when you add in the fact that it's been generally very reliable, um, I think, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, you'd have to say two thumbs up. Neil, you finished off the interview by asking Steve who he expects to be the Moto2 World Champion in 2021. I'd be remiss if I uh, didn't put you on the spot as well. Uh, If you were putting me on the spot right now, Steve, I mean, with extremely limited um, winter testing, I would probably go for Marco Bezzecchi, just because I think that um, that championship could have been his last year. uh, But for the crash at Aragon, you know, if he won that, that first race at Aragon, um, I think he could have gone on and, and won the championship, maybe even won the championship relatively comfortably, considering how it played out. Um, it didn't work out that way, but Bezeki was still um, in his second year, and I think he's he's you know Bezeki is definitely a future MotoGP rider. I have no doubt about that. Um, I think he's going to be very hard to beat. But I think um, Sam Lowe showed last year what um, a kind of uh, confident Sam Lowe's in a stable environment that believes in him what he is capable of and, and he did some things last year which were absolutely tremendous so i think he's going to be a, a name as well in the mix um and then we're going to have to see about the likes of um jorge navarro whether he'll be able to to step up uh Dijan antonio um just a few question marks remaining about him um 
you know, Marcel Schroeder, Thomas Lutti, some of the, the names that you kind of expect to see in the podium week in, week out, whether they can step up and make a, a push for the championship. But um, yeah, I think Bezeki would be my, my favourite at this point of the season. Adam Neal's named pretty much the entire field there. Who are you uh, <laughs> picking as your uh, as your man to watch in 2021? Uh, try and pick some of the names Neil hasn't. Uh, give me a minute. Uh, I'd have to say, no, I, I agree with Sam Lowe's. And also, I'd like to see him kind of emerge from the, the underdog role. He's always fighting some kind of adversity, whether it's you know a series of, of good results, then followed by a crash or a mistake, and then he's fighting to gain points back, or it's been an injury, or s- some kind of hurdle. You know, If he can start the season off well, already be in a championship winning position, then it'd be great to see how he can handle that. He's won a championship before. He knows how to do it. Uh, you know, that will be interesting to see. For me, I've said before, uh, I'm a Remy Gardner fan. I think he has bags of talent. Uh, I think potentially maybe only one more uh, season in the class because I think he's going to be fast-tracked somehow into into MotoGP. And now he's on the KTM kind of uh, ladder, you could say. Uh, you know, if he could be iron, he could want a spot in uh, the Tech 3 team uh, for 2022 or maybe Petrucci's bike. I mean, there's possibilities there for him. I think it's a great career move to be a Wacky Ayo. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, there are there's just a sea of talent in that category, isn't there? Uh, I think, you know, look out for the rookies. Somebody like Ralph Fernandez um, shows he has the mentality and also the skills to do the job. So, But yeah, Lowe's Gardner. Uh, I'm probably going to miss somebody glaring off the list, but they're my picks. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens with the likes of Gardner because going back to what we were talking about, about Joe Roberts earlier on, potentially you know, turning down a MotoGP seat and not getting that opportunity again. Of course, for Remy, he turned down a MotoGP seat a couple of years ago, Neil. And, you know, if he goes out and wins races and puts himself into a title-winning position, he could well find himself onto the Premier Class grid. No, absolutely, yeah. And I, I kind of, I'm, I'm kicking myself now because I forgot to mention Remy. Obviously, I think he's going to be one of the big players this year as well. Um, and uh, as I had mentioned, yeah, he's he's basically already on the path to MotoGP. I think Remy's been told that if he starts the season well, uh, if he's in the running um, for the championship, um, maybe by the halfway stage or, or something like that. I'm not sure exactly what his contract says, but uh, I think Remy has been told in no uncertain terms start 2020 well and sorry 2021 well and you'll be uh, you'll be in the mix so um yeah remy was uh, it was 2020 was comfortably his best season uh he added consistency to his game for i think the first time um and um you know by the end of the year he was picking up he wasn't just picking up good results fourth places or, or third places at tracks that he's historically was bad at or, or didn't like um but he also showed that he could makes it with the best of them and uh, his win in Portugal was uh, was stunning I think Luca Marini afterwards said uh, Remy did a race which just didn't make sense he, he just couldn't understand how he was that fast at the end of uh, that final race in Portimao so yeah I think Remy's a good one a good shot as well so just to mention I mean I also highly rate Augusto Fernandez um, you know I think there's much more to come from him I mean, another. I know it's another Spaniard that's going to be pushing for for MotoGP saddles, but uh, you know, another rider that's got a hell of a lot of potential. Yeah, I think that Fernandez is one of the interesting ones as well, Neil, because it was a massive surprise to see him struggle as much as he did last year. You moved to the VDS team. There's obviously a lot of pressure there, but he was coming from the Pons team, obviously another team that's had a lot of success in the class. He had pole positions. He won races. You know, he's not a slouch and it was just a bit of a struggle for him last year. 
It was, yeah. I mean, he was just one of the, the, the numerous uh, names that struggled to, to get on with um, Dunlop's new front tyre, which they introduced for 2020. Uh, it threw a lot of riders off course. Um, you know, the likes of Navarro, um, Dijan Antonio earlier in the season, uh, the likes of Thomas Ludi, they just never really managed to get their head around it. Um, but with a, a bit more experience, um, I think yeah, Augusto could be a, a bit of a dark horse, uh, a switching crew chiefs from what I've heard. I think uh, David Garcia's crew chief last year is moving up to MotoGP with Alex Marquez and I think um, Lucio Nicastro is moving across from American racing team who was working with Joe Roberts last year. Um, so, you know, perhaps that, that kind of change in personnel, just the further experience of being with Mark VDS for another year um, could could help Augusto. And yeah, I agree with you, Ad. He's another, he's another guy that certainly has the potential to be winning races at the front. Yeah, trying to get his head around the Moto2 class with the Triumph engine. And hopefully today's podcast helped everyone get their head around the changes we've seen over the course of the last couple of years. Neil, a big thank you for joining us on the show and a big thanks to Steve Sargent. A really interesting interview you had with him. Yeah, thanks very much, Steve. Yeah, um, pleasure to be back on the show again. And uh, I'm looking forward to many more 2021. And Ad, again, really good to have you on the show once again. Cheers, Steve. We'll have to, uh, are we going to try to attempt Moto3 next? Because I think it could be slightly <laughs> haphazard. It could be a bit more of a minefield. Uh, I like the way that Ad has left a promise there for our listeners. Hopefully our sound engineer will cut that out so we don't all have egg on our face <laughs> trying to predict a Moto3 championship <laughs> in 2021. But uh, I think that it's it's one of those things that in the off-season especially, it's really, it's really useful to be able to spend the time to be able to look at the smaller classes because through the course of the year, obviously our attention really does shift towards the Premier class. And it's nice to be able to basically in a show like this take a 10,000 foot view of the class and look at the changes that we've seen yeah but I think it's also I mean Moto3 yeah some brands obviously use it as, as part of their strategy I mean if you look at KTM I mean there's only really there's only two manufacturers in the class but you know if you're Yamaha you're Aprilia you're Ducati you know you don't have necessarily the equipment to to get into that class but then you you maybe want some sort of structure where you can be identifying talent at an early age I mean that, that's what KTM are doing uh, so maybe there are, you know, Moto3 has to be looked at in a different way aside from just being 12 guys going absolutely bananas on, on the last two laps, which is fantastic entertainment and, and, and utterly scary, I have to say. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, there is maybe a little bit more depth to it. Well, Neil, just a question for you, just related to what Ad's talking about. If you remember back to the start of the Moto2 era, Speed Up was formed from a lot of ex-Aprilia engineers. Is that sort of model still possible for manufacturers to go into the different classes, do you think? Uh, I think so. I mean, KTM showed that um, it was possible to, to come into Model 2 with uh, with no experience with the, the Honda engine. Uh, back in 17, wasn't it, I think, with when they had um, Oliveira and Binder. Um, and they were successful pretty much straight away. I think Oliveira was on the podium in the second or third race. So... It is possible, but then I guess the other edge of the sword is that they can get it badly wrong, as witnessed by KTM in 2019 when it was, uh, well, it was almost a disaster. Brad Binder still managed to uh, fight for the championship right the way to the end, but in general, it was uh, it was a lot of uh, of headaches for of, for the Austrian factory. So yeah, this I think it is possible. Yeah, for sure, if you if you have the uh, the experience and the and the manpower behind it, um, it, it certainly is possible. But it is a big undertaking. Yeah, well, Ad's put us on the spot for Moto3 and seeing as he mentioned KTM, we'll have to make sure that Ad's able to get an interview with someone from KTM to talk about 
their involvement <laughs> with Husqvarna, Gas Gas and KTM in the Moto3 class. So that's uh, certainly going to be something that uh, will put Ad under pressure now to be able to deliver for a future podcast. But uh, boys, Steve, really... are, you, are you by chance in a hotel room in, in Australia somewhere? Because the way you volleyed that tennis ball straight back to me was pretty impressive. Well, I'll be honest, Ad, I am incredibly annoyed at where I am. There's no private tennis court available for me. There's no swimming pool. Well, actually, there's a massive puddle outside because it's been raining for the last three days. But uh, <laughs> other than that, like the facilities here are just awful. Yeah, I haven't have washed my hair. hair in ages, Neil. I thought your mammy washes your hair, Steve, so surely well, she's around. I, I've never washed my own hair. Like like most normal people, I've never done that. It's just not something I do. But what we do hair. do on the Paddock Pass podcast is uh, try and keep everyone informed. So if uh, anyone wants to drop us a question at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter or at Neil Morrison 87 at On Track Off Road, at Moto Matters, or at Steve English GP. We'll make sure that we're able to get those answered for you for next week's show and for future shows. And if anyone's got any ideas of shows that they'd like us to cover in the course of the off-season, be sure to drop us a comment. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash podcast. And for as little as $3 a month, it really does make a big difference for keeping the show running. We also have a lot of exclusive content through the year, whether that's interviews or in the case of the top 10 show from 2020, uh, nice feature shows where we give a lot of insight as well. So Neil, thanks for joining us on the show. Ad, thanks for joining us on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening to this. 